this episode is brought to you by Saris. Saris is a company in Madison, Wisconsin that creates amazing functional pieces of art for your car to transport your bike. They are efficient. They're for cyclist, bicyclist. It's an accessory for your car and your lifestyle, literally an extension of who you are. It just looks good with or without a bike. They're lightweight and durable, and the accessibility factor is huge. Even our young kids are able to move the bike rack when they need to get in the rear of the car or whatever reason. Um, It's so easy, so functional. So check it out. We have a giveaway. We actually have a rack that we're giving away, compliments of Sarah's. So check out swimbikemom.com forward slash giveaway. So thank you all for listening and enjoy the show. Today's podcast guest is Jeff Goins. He is an inspiration to me personally. When I started writing my book in 2011, I just couldn't quite get my head around it. And it wasn't because I wasn't writing or I didn't know what I was going to write about, but it was because I hadn't come to the realization that I was a writer and that writers write. And it sort of became a part of who I am and that identifying who I was was the major step in getting to where I wanted to be. So I hope you guys enjoyed this interview with Jeff. We talk about um, being creative and what it what the creative process means and how real artists don't starve, which is the title of his new book, and also whether or not his guacamole or my guacamole is better. So enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. I'm very excited about our guest today. Jeff Goins is here. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Meredith. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I learned about Jeff in 2011 when I was struggling to write my book. (laughs) And I read a copy of the Writer's Manifesto, and it changed everything for me. And Jeff, I don't know if you even knew that, but when I started um, thinking of guests for the podcast, you were one of like the top 10 that came to mind because I know you probably hear it all the time that what you do is change people, but it really did. So from a starting point, thank you for that. Mm, Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. Okay. So let's talk about what it is you do. You have a brand new book out called Real Artists Don't Starve, which is a great title. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So Real Artists Don't Starve is um, uh, a book about how to not be a starving artist and whether your art is your business, it's your painting, it's the books that you write. I believe that art is a gift that you have to share with the world and you don't have to starve to do that. And I stumbled upon this idea when I read a story about how Michelangelo, in spite of this story of the starving artist we hear all the time, was the richest artist of the Renaissance. Uh And I had never heard this before. I thought that was really interesting. And I kept talking to friends and family members and saying, hey, isn't that interesting? And they would go, yeah. And um, how come I never heard this before? And so what I realized is we are well acquainted with the story of the starving artist. What we are less acquainted with is the other side of the story, which turns out um, is not necessarily the exception, but more of the rule than, than we know. And that is the story of the thriving artist. And that's what this book is about. Do you, how much of 
the starving artist mentality comes from a guilt factor that people think they don't deserve to make money at what they love. Yeah, I think there's some of that. I also just think it's um, like we we live into the stories that we believe. And so I grew up um, uh, lower middle class uh, and always interested in creative things. Um, and in that environment, uh, you know, you kind of earn your keep through blood, sweat and tears. Right. And so writing, painting, making music, these are not, um, like these do not sound like very labor intensive kind of vocations. And, and so I grew up, you know, as, as a kid drawing cartoons, as a teenager playing music, acting in plays in college, uh, I, I was, I graduated college. I became a professional musician for a year. Um, and eventually I got into writing and I just always heard people say, Hey, that's, that's nice to do right now, but eventually you're going to have to grow up because you can't do that. You're going to starve. And so I just grew up assuming that was true. I don't even know that it was like a guilt factor. Uh-huh. I just assumed like this isn't a real job. Uh, it's a nice little hobby. And so I think whatever we believe, the story that we tell ourselves, that's the one that often ends up becoming true. So why is this book so important in today's world? I mean, you're trying to make some pretty big changes with this declaration. I mean, it definitely is is something that, I mean, I know growing up, it was always assumed, I mean, my parents would say, oh, you're a great writer, you're a great photographer, but it was like, you're going to go to college and have a real job. So what, you know, what, how important is this book? I mean, obviously you wrote it and it's important to you, but let's talk on a larger scale. Well, I think it's relevant now because now is arguably the best time to be creative. And I think that's true because it is in our cultural lexicon, the word creativity. You hear it in the boardroom. uh, You hear it in the classroom. This is something that we are talking about in every aspect of culture in ways that I don't think we've ever really talked about it before, the importance of creativity in all kinds of vocational pursuits. So, I, I mean, I just think that's, that's evident from the Ted talks we see to the articles, you know, that are circulating the internet to just the conversations that, you know, we see happening, um, amongst friends and colleagues and so forth. And today we live in this very interesting era where there are no more middlemen. You mm-hmm. want to, uh, make some music and have people listen to it. Uh, you know, streaming it for free online and build an audience of a thousand true fans. You could do that. And you don't need a record label to do that. You want to write and publish a book and have people read it and, and tell their friends about it. You don't need a, um, a a book publishing company. You don't need a publisher to help you do that. Uh, And so we live in this era of opportunity And, uh, I think this message is really important. Um, if you're willing to do what James Altucher talks about, choose yourself, if you're willing to go, okay, I'm going to bet on me and, and I'm going to embrace the opportunities that I have to help my creative work thrive. It's a really exciting opportunity to do creative work. It's a really great time to do that. If you're willing to tell yourself the story, I don't have to starve to do this. Mm Mm-hmm. And how, how important is it to, I mean, in your book, do you set out like a knowing your purpose kind of thing, or is it, you know, do you, do you give the reader some strategies that they can use? 
So the book, uh, the subtitle is Timeless Strategies for Thriving in the New Creative Age. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to talk about things that have always worked, timeless strategies, principles, things that have always been true about how creative people, artists, entrepreneurs, writers, so on, uh, have always succeeded. Uh, but then I also didn't want to tell a bunch of stories of people, you know, who did something a long time ago and may or may not be relevant to today's world. Cause obviously things are changing and have changed. Uh, and, and so I wanted to illustrate, uh, uh, strategies and principles that are working today. And so the book is made up of gosh, probably close to a hundred stories of the past several hundred years of creative work up through the present. And, and it, and each chapter is a rule, uh, which is, you know, a, a particular strategy. If you do this, and I know creative people don't like rules, but a rule is just like, if you do it, it works. If you don't, you pay the consequences, right? Like that's a rule. We have rules in our house for, uh, our kids, so that they understand that their actions have consequences. And I was talking to an artist today who said, Hey, I'm, I'm doing everything that your book, you know, says to not do. And I was like, okay, okay, cool. How's like, I, like, for you? <laughs> like, let me know how it works. And again, like this isn't, uh, I didn't write this book. Like these are my ideas, uh, j- just my ideas. These were my observations after reading hundreds of biographies of famous, uh, authors and artists and creative entrepreneurs who had succeeded and failed. And, and I noticed that there were basically 12 things that all of these people did or didn't do. And then I compared it to hundreds of interviews that I did with uh, full-time working creatives today. And again, I looked at people who were successful and not successful. And I, and I tried to see, you know, compare and contrast them. And what I came up with were these 12 rules of what I call the new Renaissance. And I like to think of it like eating your vegetables, right? Like if you skip one or two, are you still going to be a healthy person? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that works. If you eat all of them all of the time, are you going to be really healthy? Absolutely. If you eat one or two, are you going to have certain deficiencies and problems with your health? Probably. So the idea here is the more of these things you do, these 12 rules, the better off you're going to be. And the less that you do of them, uh, it's not that you're doomed, but you're really rolling the dice. You're really kind of playing against uh, the odds. And, and so these rules include things like join a scene. Like if you want to do creative work, then you need to be around and surround yourself with uh, creative people and other inspirations. And if you want to make money, you need to have a rule that you very rarely, and I would argue never, work for free. Uh, you know, another one is practice in public. This is the idea that you need to market your work, but the best way to market your work is to actually do your work in a place where people can find it. And so these are the things that the more of them you do, the more likely you are to succeed. And the less of them you do again, you know, you're leaving things up to chance. So I read something on your website and I wanted to debate it with you. (laughs) You said you make the world's best guacamole. Yeah, that's actually not debatable, Meredith. Um, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I there, heard there are things same. in my <laughs> there are things in my books that you know I'm happy <laughs> if you want to disagree with them. We can agree to disagree. This one, however, is not up for debate. It's and I don't want to take this on a too much of a sidetrack, <laughs> but I have been said to make the world's best guacamole. So I feel like we need to discuss what it is that is so great about yours, and I'll tell you what's so great about mine, and then. 
we can maybe decide. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, well, I mean, the, the only true way to decide is with a, a taste <laughs> test, of course. And the internet isn't that advanced yet, but someday we'll be able to we'll be able to swipe tastes and smells over. Okay, swap. so tell me about your guacamole. Yeah. What's in it? Okay, uh, it's very simple. Uh, I mean, I, I just think you know, like if you are not buying a container of it, like you're you're already winning if you're striving to you know make homemade guacamole. Uh, so you want to know my recipe? Yeah. I'm All right. It. Okay. Well, you know, like whatever you've got in the house is, is fine. Uh, but you know, so we kind of experiment with different things. Um, but the staples are of course, avocados. If I'm just making like a bowl for like two people, two avocados, one Roma tomato, um, uh, fresh diced garlic, as much cilantro as you can muster, uh, about a, like a, like a lime, depending on how big it is, freshly squeezed, uh, salt and pepper to taste. Um, uh, uh, a little bit of diced red onion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, th- that's sort of the staple. Now here's, if you're, if you're wanting to get crazy, uh, here's, you know, the wild card that I throw in here and you can tell me if you ever do anything like this, uh, throw in some pomegranate seed seeds to uh, sweeten it up. And that makes for a real fun experience. Very nice. Very nice. Mine is very close actually. So hmm. I don't do tomato, but I do the red My wife onion. doesn't like tomato. Yeah. I do yeah. the red onion, but I'd make it like super fine because, sure. you know, these chunks are awful. But then yep. there's this ancient like salt that you can buy on the spice aisle. It's called, I think, Crazy Jane's Mixed Up Salt or something. And that is my secret sauce. And then I use a whole lime too. And um, yep. yeah. So anyway, I love guacamole. <laughs> yeah, me too. Sometimes like squeezing a little bit of orange in there for some extra citrus, I think, oh. you know, can be fun or a lemon. Um, but the fact that you don't use tomatoes makes me take you a little bit less seriously. <sighs> See, <laughs> I don't know. I find that, I don't know. I'm you need curious. the juice. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, you need the juice. My, my wife doesn't like tomatoes, so I can only put a few of them in there, but I think it's the juice that flavors it. I use a ton. Oh, that could. Okay. I can see that. All right. You might, you might have me beat. I you could, not- you know. You could squeeze a little bit of tomato in there, even if you don't like the chunks of tomato. Yeah. Okay. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Maybe that's why I put so much lime juice in there. Cause it, I love, yeah, you can't, you can't, in my mind, you can't really overdo the lime or the cilantro. Right. Okay. So that was a nice, completely off the topic, but Good. I saw that. Good. And I was Glad like, we did that. What's world's best guacamole? I don't <laughs> believe it. <laughs> it's made with love. I mean, really the love is what makes it the best. That's right. That's right. Um, okay. So let's talk a little bit about where you came from and how you decided yeah. that helping other artists become their best version of themselves. How did that become your mission? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. It's the short answer. <laughs> You're too busy think... making guacamole. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, as an artist, you know, I, I, I try to subscribe to that moniker. Um, I'm just trying to figure stuff out for myself. And I like what Derek Sivers says about this. He says, what's obvious to you is amazing to others. So uh, I started with a vision, um, you know, an idea of who I wanted to be, what I wanted to accomplish. And this happened when I was about 28 years old working at a nonprofit as a marketing director. So I mentioned, you know, art and creativity was always something that I did. It was always a hobby. I never considered it a real career track. So I graduate college. I have a very practical degree in Spanish and religion. 
you know, double major. And then I go, uh, be a musician for a year. I kind of get that out of my system. And then I meet this girl and I want to marry her. And so I'm like, okay, I guess I need a job. <laughs> I moved, I moved to Nashville. I started working in a call center. Uh, and then I didn't like that very much. And so I emailed all these different people trying to find a job. And one person who responded was the founder of this nonprofit, uh, based in Georgia actually. And, um, he responded, I read his blog. He responded and basically offered me a job as a writer. And I was like, he was like, you're a writer. I was like, I am. And he was looking at my resume and you know, after you graduate college, like you were filling that thing with every random thing that you (laughs) ever did. And one of those things for me was I was a writing tutor in college as a way of making some money. I've always been good at English. I've always liked writing, but I, I didn't necessarily think that this was like a career track for me. And he hires me as a copywriter basically. And then from there, I become a marketing manager and then I should become the marketing director. I worked this job for five years and I start to get bored with it. And, uh, you know, I'm approaching my thirties now and I am looking another 10 or so years ahead, anticipating a midlife crisis, like going, if I stay here for the next 10, 15 years, I know I'm not going to get fired. And I know, so I could, I know I could just kind of coast and every year get a little bit more responsibilities uh, get a raise and just keep going. And that comfort, I mean, some people might look at that and go, Oh, that, that sounds great. That's like mm-hmm. a good deal. The comfort of that made me very, very nervous. And so I felt like I had some sort of itch that I couldn't quite scratch. And you know, you know, when you have something like that, you just try everything, right? You use your pencil, whatever, whatever you can find. And so that's what I did. I started going to conferences and seminars and I started reading blogs and watching webinars and doing anything that I could do to find out what is it that I'm missing? And Parker Palmer, who's an author and activist says it like this. He says, before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. And so I was really searching for an identity. Who am I really? And as I began to listen to my life and talk to other people and uh, just become more self-aware, I realized I'm a writer. I am somebody who creates things and puts them out into the world and and watches those things hopefully transform people. And uh, I remember having a conversation with a friend at that time, and he asked me what my dream was. And I kind of very reluctantly said, you know, I guess I'd like to be a writer and he said, Jeff, you don't have to want to be a writer. You are a writer. You just need to write. And that experience led to me getting up the next day and, uh, you know, writing a blog post at 5 a.m. and publishing it and then doing that every single day for the next year. And I did that for a year. I grew an audience of uh, over 10,000 people. Uh, and then people told me I could make money off of that. And I said, oh, that sounds great. My wife uh, was expecting a baby. Uh, it was our first child. And so we, we needed more money. Uh, and we actually couldn't afford for her to stay home and, and be a mom for a while, which um, uh, she really wanted to do. And so that became my motivation for trying to take this audience that I built online with a blog and turn it into uh, a business. And by the end of that kind of second year of, of the, the blog's life, I had uh, replaced my income and her income, and we had tripled our, our household income. And now I was staring at this opportunity that just, you know, a couple of years before wasn't even like uh, on my radar. 
And mm-hmm. so I, I don't know that there was a bunch of intentionality. There was this struggle to find out who I was. And then once I really figured that out, I believe that activity follows identity. So once you figure out who you really are, what you do becomes really, really easy. But so many of us don't quite know who we are. And you're constantly learning this. I'm constantly discovering more and more about myself. Uh, but once you begin to understand more of that, the decision uh, becomes easier and easier. And so really, uh, I am trying to share things that are obvious to me because the more I've done that with writing and creativity and art, business, uh, and, and I share something that's obvious to me, somebody goes, wow, that's amazing. And I go, really? It is cool. And, and so for me, finding your voice as a writer, an artist, a creative is really just this process of putting stuff out there. And when you get feedback, you continue to build on that. And I think that's true in business. I think that's true in marketing. I certainly think that's true, uh, in writing, but in terms of what I'm trying to do, um, it's really just, I want to share ideas that resonate with me and, and I hope that they resonate with other people. And some of them do, and some of them don't. My job is to keep putting the ideas out there and then listening for the feedback. So when you built your audience through the blog and then you transitioned toward it being a bit of a moneymaker, did you find that any of your blog audience was a little miffed at that? Uh, not really. I mean, I think you always deal with a little bit of that, but Mm -hmm. uh, nobody protested to the point that I remember it today, which is, you know, six years later. Um, Now, today, there are people that come and they read a blog post and then they realize something is for sale, whether it's a book or a course or what have you. And, and they're like offended, but I right. mean, those, those people are going to be offended that they have to buy anything. So I don't really count that. I always but find here's what, it real. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, what I was going to say was this, keep in mind, I blogged 500 to a thousand words every single day for a year. And during that year, I gave away multiple free eBooks, multiple free webinars. I mean, I was giving so much stuff away. Yeah. And and the the only goal in my mind at that point, Meredith, was I wanted to build an audience. I knew that was important. I knew that was an asset. Once I had that, I would be able to do things with that, like go get a book deal, which I did, uh, and then potentially monetize it into other revenue streams. Mm-hmm. And but I mean, I was kind of like. I would learn something. I would read something on a business or, you know, blog about blogging uh, or a marketing blog. And then I'd go apply it. So I'd learn and apply and learn and apply. So I was always just kind of testing these things that I was learning. And the idea of making some money off of this sounded like a good idea, but it wasn't some big grandiose plan. It was just a vision. Like, could I be a writer, like a full-time writer? And I was constantly trying to find ways to make that possible. But during that year, that first year of giving away a lot of stuff, Um, I started getting emails at the end of the year, almost one per day where somebody would email me and say, Hey, this is great. Love all this free stuff. You're great. Love this article. That's great. Thank you for the webinar. Now, can I buy something from you? (laughs) And it's really fascinating. And the answer was no, I don't have anything. And I, I was scared. I was scared to charge. Um, because I thought people would be mad and I was, and I lacked confidence. Do I, I've given all this stuff away for free. Do, do I have the right to now sell something? I wasn't sure. And, um, but, but enough people were coming to me basically saying, Hey, can I, can you, can you please take my money? Uh, (laughs) that I was like, okay, I have to, I have to let them. Uh, I think it's Amanda Palmer in her book. Um, uh, what is it? The art of asking, uh, where she says, you don't have to make people pay you 
for your art, but you do have to let them. And I love that idea. I had a similar thing. I mean, I, I started, you know, cause I had kids and I did the obligatory mom blog for three years and then sure. my whole yeah. stick started because I was way overweight and out of shape and I was going to try to become a triathlete. And so I thought uh-huh. I'd write about it because it had to cool. be funny, you know? And <laughs> so I started writing just because almost as an accountability factor, like I have to write this. So it's true. <laughs> Because if I don't tell someone about this, no one will believe it's happening. And, you know, I built an audience that way, but not even realizing that, you know, a community was kind of coming up around it. But I had a similar thing. People were like, we want T-shirts. Can you make (laughs) T-shirts and can you make shorts? And, um, you know, and and so I've I've done some growing as far as making money writing as well. But it's a very interesting dynamic how you can provide content for, you know, five, seven years. And when you put something up for sale, people are like, why are you trying to sell me something? And I'm like, you have 10,000 blog posts over the last 10 years. Like, really? Do you know how many hours I sat? You know, it's just, it's really interesting um, telling people, you know, go forth and be an artist. And and then what do you have to say about the haters? Let's talk about the haters because they're they're everywhere. And um, are you able to just focus on the good? Like how, because you've got a huge audience now. How are you able to focus on the good and ignore the bad? No, of course not. Yeah. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Yeah. No, that never happens. Um, every negative email, main comment, bad review that I read, um, stings a little. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it doesn't derail me. I mean, man, my wife should start doing podcast interviews because she'll tell you the other side of the story, (laughs) which is like every time I would get some, uh, negative email where I would just like write, I would write an article and I would send it to 20, 30, 40,000 people. And somebody would reply and say, I don't like what you're doing. I disagree with you. Like, I mean, they would, they would attack my character Yeah. and I mean, it would derail me for days. I've gone never writing again. I can't do this because of one person, you yeah. know, or, or a negative Amazon review or whatever. I have learned to accept those things as part of the job. Um, and, uh, and I've even learned to celebrate them. And a recent example of that was, um, you know, my book, my newer book, real artists don't starve came out and, you know, I was trying to get to a hundred reviews. And, and so I was asking people to leave an honest review of the book. I don't care what you thought about it. I'm not asking for five star review. That's not like, if you don't think it was a five star book, don't give it a five star review. Honestly review it because this is what allows people to decide if this book is for them or not. And it's obviously not for everybody. Uh, but I think when we write a book, launch a blog post, do something, we kind of in the back of our mind think this is for everybody. Like I kind of want everybody to like, this. I hope everybody likes it. Right. And, which is r- ridiculous. Um, so, you know, I'm watching these reviews come in and, and, and they're all four and five star reviews, which is great. And then I get to like a, a review number 120 and it's a, uh, one star review. And, um, you know, basically the person says, this is one of the most boring books I've ever read. All it was, was just a bunch of stories. And, you know, like I just like, I, I skipped entire sections and then chapters. Um, I, and it made me never want to buy something from this author again. And I was like, oh my God, this is awful. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, this hurts, you know? And, and I read it a couple of times and I was like, 
no, this is actually really good. And I actually like I screenshotted it. I shared it on Instagram and Facebook and, and like being totally sincere. I said, this is a really good review because, um, she didn't miss the point. Like this person doesn't like stories and I love stories. And I specifically intentionally wrote this book to be chock full of stories. Cause I'm like, what could be more entertaining and interesting, uh, you know, and to illustrate your argument, then just tell a bunch of stories. And this person found it, you know, boring and she just wished, wanted me to get to the point. And I was like, like we're on different wavelengths and that's okay. And I said, Hey, read this review. If you don't like stories, don't buy this book. And so I think sometimes I, we mistake haters with critics, right? Mm-hmm. A, and we don't like listening to either, of course. A hater is very obvious because they are just hating on you. I mean, they're trolling you. They're saying rude, mean things, uh, and you just you just have to turn them off. And and you know the world has some of those people in there. Uh, it's not a lot of them though. Yeah. And, and then there are critics. There are just people who, um, want to help you. And my friend, Tim Grawl, um, talks about critics and then he talks about babysitters. And the critic is saying, I, you know, Meredith, I really don't, I really don't think, you, you know, you talked about this, whatever weight loss supplement. And I just don't think that I, that's, I don't think that's very wise to talk about. Or, mm-hmm. or you said, you know, I need to buy this kind of bike if I want to be a triathlete. And I just, you know, you're wrong. Like you, like they're challenging you and that's not fun. Um, but then there's the babysitter, which is saying, Hey, there's a typo on your blog. (laughs) I love the babysitter, which is like, like, you know, like, yeah. Right. And that, like that. So the response, first of all, the response to all three people, babysitter, critic, um, and, uh, a hater, the response I think is always the same, which is thank you. The I, best way to you think so? See, I just yeah, yeah. I tend to. Ignore. I mean, what are you gonna do? Yeah, ignore or, is fine. No, you're right. You're right. No, I think I thank the critic. I definitely ignore the hater. Um, yeah, for sure because they feed on the drama. Yeah, here's what I would do. I would um, I would thank the babysitter and go <laughs> fix whatever they they found because it's like something silly, but but like important, you know, right. like it's. It's not essential, but it's like, okay, I'll go fix the typo. And if you spend any emotional energy on that, you're just wasting your time. I mean, they really are trying to help you. They're probably, they may just be doing it in an awkward way. Sometimes even it looks sort of rude, but they're, they are earnestly trying to help you and and you need to see the motive for what it is. The critic, uh, wants to challenge you and, uh, that's okay too. Um, but the answer is thank you. And, and I typically, I take that, I take the criticism and then I go to somebody I trust, not a stranger. I go to, uh, you know, the 12 guys that, that are part of my mastermind group that I meet with every single Wednesday and, and say, Hey, is this true about me? Am I missing something? Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I test it and then, you know, I process it and, and apply it or whatever the hater. Um, sometimes I just say thanks cause it's fun <laughs> and, and, and then, you know, move on like the person who person who wrote a three-star review of my book and said, yeah, but do artists really starve? I know this person who starves and this person who starves. You know, like I think maybe, you know, you can make a case for a starving artist. Uh, like that's a critic. That's somebody yeah. who's challenging me. And, and I'm actually happy to debate that and talk with them about it to a, to an extent because 
I believe this message. Uh, the person who goes, this is the worst book I ever read, one star review, boring, 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 mm-hmm. and then goes and leaves that same review on other review sites with different names, like that's a hater. And I go, hey, thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just because, but I, but I really don't, I don't consider it um, beyond that. Well, and I think a lot of times the critic wants to put you in some sort of box, um, you know, trying to maybe say you're pretending to be an expert in X, Y, and Z when like for me, for example, so I'm like mired in the sport of triathlon. I'm also a very average triathlete, but I am an expert when it comes to newbie female triathletes. Like I am, that is my area of expertise. And so when people like to criticize me for, you know, the way I coach elite athletes or whatever, it's like, we're talking apples and oranges here, people. Like I have my carved out area of expertise and it's the new mom who wants to do a sprint triathlon or whatever. And so I think a lot of the criticism can come from that too. Yeah. No, I, I love that. Um, yeah. And you just have to decide, what is the game that you're really playing, right? We all get to decide the games that we play. And I, you know, I mean that in a very serious Mm -hmm. sense. Um, and this is why I love the idea of the portfolio life, that your life doesn't have to be one thing. Your vocation doesn't have to be one thing that you don't have to be a jack of all trades, but you can become a master of some, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I'm not the world's best writer or the world's best marketer, the world's best, you know, entrepreneur, but I've taken those three different buckets and I have combined them in an interesting way and added, you know, wrap my voice around it. And I am the best at what I do because it's unique and it's me. And, and when we take a few different unlikely things and we combine them, all of a sudden we have something new and interesting and and people go, wow, that's that's something I've never seen before. And you can master that versus just trying to compete with somebody playing their game. I had a revelation not too long ago, thinking about all of my friends who are more talented at one thing than I Yes. I love, I love talking about this. This has been on my brain forever. I love that you're saying you can do a bunch of things that makes you, you let's keep going. Sorry. I was just, yes, I I had a revelation. So I have a lot of very, I have famous friends and, you know, very talented friends and very successful friends. And I was thinking about one friend who was, you know, running an eight figure business. And I was like, ah, I'm not as successful as him. And I'm not even, I'm not like, I'm, I, my brain doesn't work that way. Like he is a CEO through and through. And I kind of have this little internet business and it's a nice way to make some money. And, um, like he's just at the next level, you know, and we started at the same time. And so I feel shame about that. I wish I, I should be farther ahead. My therapist says shame is an acronym for should have already mastered everything. And so <laughs> that's how I feel about everything. I'm like, Oh, I'm not good at that. I haven't mastered that yet. And then I was thinking about, you know, a friend of mine who's a killer writer way better than me. And I'm like, Oh man, if I wasn't messing around with all this internet stuff, I probably could write <laughs> better books, you know, and, and be as good as this guy. And then this person over here is a great speaker. Another one who's an amazing marketer. And I'm finding all these one things that I'm not very good at, but I do all these things and I do them not as well as all of my friends do. And I was just feeling like, man, what am I doing? And then I just had this thought. I remember walking across the street, just thinking about these things with my head down. And, and the, the thought was, you know, you hear the, the saying, beat them at their own game. Like, what horrible advice, you know, like, <laughs> like sh- strive to do something that somebody may be very, like way better, uh, uh, at it than you are. 
like just strive to, to beat them at that. Oh, sweet. Great. Like that just sounds like a lifetime of anxiety, like do things that I am not well suited to do, uh, and just try to beat everybody who's way better at those things than I am. So the, the thought was uh, don't beat them at their own game, beat them at yours, like yeah. change the game. Like I am the best at what I do. So I'm going to keep doing what I do. I'm going to stay in my lane and sure, I'm going to pay attention to the principles of successful people who have come before me and peers and friends who are winning in different areas of life. Cause that's wisdom. You want to surround yourself with, uh, people who are, um, you know, doing great things and you can learn from what they're doing, but to compare apples to apples with them makes no sense and will make you feel shame about doing something that very likely offers incredible value to someone yeah. else. And, and so that just diminishes your gift, right? Meredith, if, if you, if constantly you're going, I'm just not this that good at this. I just do this, this dumb thing. And you've got people who are going, this is amazing. You have made, uh, these athletic achievements that at one point felt like I felt disqualified from, you mm-hmm. have given me permission to do this. I mean, that, that changed, that changed everything for me. And if you go, well, it's just this thing. I mean, you're really diminishing right. the gift that you give other people versus saying, man, I do this and I rock at this and I'm going to keep doing this and keep continuing to master my own little portfolio. That's such good advice. I had a similar kind of moment that you had recently. I went to law school and was a practicing lawyer for 12 years and I escaped the legal profession last year. And, um, one of my friends was in the bar magazine and had a picture and had all these accolades and she's a big partner. And I was like, Oh man, I really messed that up. And I'm for a minute, I'm like, what, what am I even thinking? I hated being a lawyer, you know, but you have that. (laughs) Well, maybe I should have just applied myself and then it could have been a partner and been miserable me personally, you know, it's so bizarre that we like how much of that ties into learning to trust yourself. Yeah. Somebody asked me recently, like if you could go back and give yourself one gift, one ability, one piece of advice, um, uh, you know, seven, 10 years ago, whenever you started this journey, what would it be? And I said, I would tell myself to go to counseling. (laughs) Because the best gift that I've received is self-awareness. Yeah. And I'm very interested in temperaments and what people are suited to do. Um, Because I have one friend who's a perfectionist. And, and when I'm around him, like, he's like, why don't you do this like this? And, and, and why don't you just do this? Like this, that's the hardest kind of advice to hear is like, well, just do it. Yeah. Oh God. Like I was, I've been trying for five years. I just can't. I'd really like, I need better advice than just do it. Um, and, and I, the thing, the thing that I'm realizing is, well, this is going to make me happy. You know, I'm not suited to do this and I could do it. Like I'm smart enough that I could discipline myself to do something that would create a lot of stress and anxiety for me, but it's not for me. But then you see somebody who looks kind of like you look and is a similar age as you and it, you know, is of the same level of intelligence and, you know, uh, ability and you go, well, they're doing that. Well, why can't I do that? I should do that. And, and the reality is they may on the outside look a lot like you, but on the inside, they look nothing like you. And so they're doing this maybe, and they're loving it. They're thriving. You know, they're coming alive in it. Whereas you do it and it's, it's going to kill your soul. And so 
I really, really do think that the more we understand who we are, uh, the better decisions we make about what we're going to do for a living and how we're going to structure our lives and even what our dreams are. I love that quote that many of us are going to climb a ladder in life only to realize at the end that it was leaning against the wrong wall. Yes. Like, like that's what I am scared of. I think the worst kind of failure is success at the wrong thing. Yes. And so yes. when I write in my book, you know, like you don't have to be a starving artist. The converse of that is not rich or wealthy artists. The converse is thriving, means you're do, which means you're doing what you love. And, and yeah, you're making a living at it. You are not broke doing it. It is not a stressor. It is something that allows you to thrive in every sense of the word. And I think at the end of the day, that's what most of us want to do what only we can do and to thrive at it. I saw, um, Gary Vaynerchuk speak last week and he, you know, I I don't know if you know him, but he's very loud and boisterous and, you know, stop your shit, do what you need to do kind of stuff. And, um, (laughs) he was super entertaining. But one thing that he said that really, really struck me is he goes, you just need to make damn sure that this is what you want. He goes, this is not easy. I miss things. I don't see my family. I don't sleep. I'm, you know, and I always think that that's such an interesting perspective because people will say, oh, well, at least you get to be home with your kids now and you get to do these things. And I'm like, yeah, but I am on an electronic device 20 hours a day. Like, you know, you can have this too. (laughs) It's just you have to decide if that's what you want. And if, and that's hard, it's hard to get to that place to envision your own success or to, to know what your version of success really looks like and make sure you want it. It's just like being the partner in the law firm. I mean, I could Mm -hmm. do that, but Mm -hmm. then what? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love Gary because he is a very, he's a great reminder of what I don't want. And I, and I don't, I don't, I don't mean that in any sort of disparaging sense. And he's very clear about that. He goes, you know, like you define success. And if you're, you know, whatever, working the 40 hour work week in a cubicle and you're loving it, like you win, you like you're winning. And, um, I mean, I just think the challenge is like, he's got such a cult of personality. People wanted, like they want what they think he has, but they're not willing to do what he does. Right. And I don't want what he has. Like I, I'm the opposite. Like I'm not willing to do what you're doing. So therefore I can't want what you have. Right. And, and I'm okay with that. And I've actually learned to embrace it and go, wait, like, I want to see my family. Mm -hmm. I don't want to work more than 25 hours a week. I never open my laptop at night. Uh, And it means I miss out on, like, you miss out either way. You miss out on life or you miss out on work um, because you can't do both at the same time. You just can't. You can't have it all. And, And it's okay. Like, and I really struggled with that for a while where I was trying to win in all things in equal uh, amounts all the time. And, and I realized I was losing at all of them. And so when I'm on, when I'm working, I'm, I'm really focused on that. When I'm at home for the most part, I'm really focused uh, on that just because I realized if I, if I'm doing both, I'm missing out on, on both. And, um, and I love that. I mean, I love that, that idea, like make sure you know what you want. And I would say before that, understand who you are, like in the Lion King, <laughs> you know, remember who you are. We forget who we are because we, because somebody flashes some dollar signs 
uh, or some fame or internet fame in our faces and says, look at this. You go, wow, that looks cool. I think that'll make me happy or feel significant or, you know, my life will finally have meaning. Um, and so you chase it for a while and then you realize, oh no, that, that wasn't what I thought it was. Or maybe it is, but the point is like, we have to know who we are. Then we have to understand what we want. And then we finally have to do the work to get there. Uh, you know, and as you said, Meredith, to accept the consequences that come with that. Like I accept the consequence that being there for all of my kids' major moments, with very few exceptions, uh, means that I sell less books, make less money, and am less famous. And I go, okay, like that. Like that doesn't sound like to me. That doesn't sound like a big give. And mm-hmm. five years ago, it felt like a big sacrifice. It just did. I was like, I know that I could be more successful. I know I could be better at this if if I, you know, wasn't around for as many things or didn't have a family. Mm-hmm. And I, it was a, just a lingering thought. It was a guilty thought that I had. And then I like, then you do those things for a little while and you sort of test that boundary and you go, here I am winning at all these things. And it's just not that fun celebrating it alone. Yeah, I know. I mean, I was, my kids were at home or they're at home this week and they're not in camp. And I, I had this interview scheduled with you and I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, my kids are home. And how am I going to do this? And I'm like, you know what? Yeah. I wanted this. This is exactly what I wanted. I wanted them to be right. home so we could, you know, hug before the interview. And I go now go upstairs and shut up. And then, you know, <laughs> afterwards we go to the park or something. And, yeah. um, it's, yeah, it's really important to keep, keep that perspective. So one other question I have, well, I have two other questions, but one is how do you find yourself when, you know, when I started, when I was in the legal profession and I had two young kids and I was super overweight and didn't know what I wanted, I had no idea who I was. And I gradually found myself through the sport of triathlon and getting back to kind of the roots when I was really young and loved to write. But what advice do you have for someone who's sitting here going, yeah, I don't know who I am? (laughs) I think we're constantly rediscovering who we are. Um, I I realized this writing my fifth book. Like you never learn how to write a book. Like Mm -hmm. you're always constantly learning how to do it, like for the first time. And I don't think you master it because um, every book is so unique. Madeline Langle says you have to write the book that wants to be written, right? Uh, and I think it's true with our lives. You have to live the life that wants to be lived, you know? And it sounds maybe a little woo-woo, but like you know when you're doing stuff that is in line with who you are. And you know when you step out of that. You feel fake. You feel yeah. false. Um, and I think that's a real thing, the idea of the true self and the false self. And the false self is all concerned about image and what people think about me and how cool I am and status. And you can be perceptibly – like people can perceive that you are winning at life and you are dying inside. And the, the opposite is true too. You can look like a total loser and you are the happiest <laughs> schmuck in the world. You know? right. Like it just – you know, like it's, it, it, it's hard. Um, and so how do you find yourself? I mean I do think – you have to just commit to the process of continually becoming aware of things that you're just not aware of. And most people are just not self-aware um, because it's hard, yeah, and, it and we don't we don't we don't like to hear things about ourselves. We don't like to look in the mirror and, like you think. Oh, I I still 
I still look like I did when I was 25. And then you look in the mirror and you go, oh, or you take a picture with your family. Mm-hmm. You go, oh. Like, like the, the, we don't like sometimes when the mirror or the person giving us feedback tells us the thing that we don't want to hear. Um, but I, I like what Parker Palmer says about this. He, he says you have to listen to your life. Listening to your life for me practically looks like always having people in my life that tell me things that I, I may not want to hear. And do not give a rip about who I am, how cool I am, how famous or successful I am or am, or, or aren't. Uh, and so having honest people in my life who will say, hey, I see you kind of going in a direction that it just it, – I don't think that's you. I think that's super important to have that kind of community. The second thing, which sounds like you did a little bit of, Meredith, is continually be looking at your life as a story with themes. So – I think often we think dreaming is about looking forward when in reality, when in reality, it's about looking backward. It's about um, thinking about the things that you've always done that have um, made you who you are. And so for me, like it was like writing was this thing. It wasn't a new thing. It was a very old thing. So I'm constantly paying attention to the things that seemingly come natural to me that I've done for most of my life. What is this telling me about, say, this next season of life or how I should be spending my time? Because I'm constantly saying yes to things that I, I go, oh, this this will get me X, Y, or Z, right? And and as a result, I, I feel burnout. You know, yeah. maybe it's doing a bunch of interviews or trying to speak a bunch, like do something that I think is um, something that will get me what I really want. And, and in reality, it takes me farther away from the thing that I want. And so I think it's a constant process, but I would begin by getting honest people in your life and consistently asking them hard questions. Like once a quarter, you should be asking people who love you, your spouse, your pastor, your next door neighbor, your best friend, uh, you know, your customers, like people that know you through a variety of contexts, um, and say, what am I missing? Mm-hmm. It's so important because we're always missing something. And, and then just to look at your life as a story and ask yourself, what are the themes that continue to emerge? That's important stuff. And if you do that, you will become self-aware. So many people, um, are prone to the same addictions, the same bad habits, the same horrible relationships. And they go, gosh, I wish dot, dot, dot would change. And, and it's like, no, like you, <laughs> you're the common denominator in this. Right. I have a friend on I had a friend post on Facebook the other day. He was like, man, I've been listening to a lot of Taylor Swift and I couldn't help but <laughs> recognize it. Like she's the common denominator in all these bad relationships. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, good point. That's um, so funny. I yeah. thought about that too. I'm like, man, what is with Taylor? <laughs> Jeez. She just, she just shakes it off, man. She does. She's she just a- shakes it off. But I think one thing that is really a big question mark for me as far as being a writer and kind of building community and, and since you, you've got a good community too is giving yourself permission to change because when you build a community around certain things and, and certain ways you've been, people expect that and that's what they come to you for, there becomes a real pressure to not deviate and, and to not change personally. Have you dealt with that at all? Yeah. 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 So, um, Donald Miller wrote a blog post about this. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with with Don's work, but, um, you know, he was this, you know, he wrote memoir for, you know, over a decade Mm -hmm. and then he started getting it. He started this company called story brand and he got into like business and marketing. 
which is like the antithesis of writing (laughs) self-effacing memoirs about, you know, your biggest struggles. Um, and people are like, Oh, you know, I miss, I miss the Don from blue like jazz, which was his first very successful book sold over a million copies. And he wrote a blog post basically saying, here's why I'm not that guy. And here's why that's a good thing. Yeah. Because as funny as that guy was, as likable as he was, um, he was, you know, 150 pounds overweight. He was incredibly insecure and all he cared about was like the next hit of fame or attention that he could get that could validate his existence. And so, um, I, 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 I mean, I get that. Like my wife and I regularly talk about, Hey, you're not the person that I married, you know? Mm-hmm. And we remind ourselves like, cause you can't be, you know, cause that was 10 years ago. Right. Um, and you're changing and growing and, uh, that's a good thing. I was talking to a friend yesterday and so I'm thinking about, I think I'm, I think about stopping this thing that we're doing right now, you know, in the business. He goes, man, if you are thinking about it, like you're, you're five steps beyond where you, you know, the decision-making point, meaning like the decision is already made. It's just a matter of time. Like you will stop that. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's, that's fascinating. Um, but I, I, I it, in, in my book, I call this the rule of recreation. And I think one of the greatest gifts that we have in life is we can change. Yeah. We can continually recreate ourselves and, and we can look at our lives as a work of art and go, who do I want to be today or in this next season of, of life? And um, it can be a really freeing thing to know that we are constantly becoming and never yet arriving. But that's that false self versus true self thing. The problem is even now you step into your true self, you find yourself and you go, okay, I'm Meredith, the triathlete. Uh, and then, and then there's a false self that gets presented there where people, you know, oh, you're funny. Now you have to be funny all the time. You can't be serious. Uh, or, you know, you know, all these different things are now expectations and it can become just another false self. And so, our job is to continue to recreate ourselves and understand that that will be for some people and it won't be for other people. Yeah, uh, that's uh, really good advice that you can't be for everyone. Yeah. My friend Derek Webb says this. I thought this is very healthy, um, uh, sort of pruning process. He says, um, every year he tries to, um, basically prune a third of his audience, a third. Wow. Like he's constantly doing something that's so innovative. Like he started out as like a folk singer songwriter and then he came out with this hip hop album, right? Like he's constantly deviating from people's expectations, probably because I think it's fun for him. Like that's part of his art. And, you know, part of it is, is he, um, doesn't want to get stuck. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so we're worried about losing the third without realizing you're still keeping two thirds. And if you're doing something new, you are entering new spaces, um, affording yourself the opportunity to meet new people, reach new people. And, um, and I think that the cost of doing that is losing that, you know, the third of your audience. Right. Well, my, um, so my nickname in the blog that started was swim bike mom, which was a play on swim bike run, you know, adding the mom on the end. And I was talking to my friend yesterday and I was like, so I'm not swimming. And I'm not biking right now, so I'm just mom <laughs> at this point because I've built this identity around being swim bike mom, yeah. but I'm not doing some of those things. And so, I, you know, the last year I've kind of branched out and, and, and worked on 
you know, setting up a little bit different vibe. I mean, I'm still a triathlon coach. I'm still an expert in beginning triathletes and that kind of stuff. But as far as who I am, you know, that's changing a little bit. And and it's, it's interesting because a lot of people, maybe a third of my audience does not like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably not. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them can learn to deal with it and some of them can't. And you see this in any relationship, right? Like, uh, I saw this growing up, you know, as I became a man, um, my family was like, wait, but you're, you're this, you're, you're this guy growing up. My nickname was Dieter cause my, um, uh, I used to, my dad used to call me stinker when I was you know, four or five years old. And I would say, I'm not a Dieter dad, <laughs> you know, and, and in a very normal way, and, and I'm this way with them and they're this way with me, they still expect me to be Dieter, yeah. right? I'm like, well, I'm a 34 year old man now with my own family. Uh, I'm not Dieter anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and that's hard for anybody who feels like they know you for a long time. And I think there's a, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. I think the way Taylor Swift, <laughs> uh, since we picked on her earlier, changed her identity, uh, gradually over time, uh, was a, was a really good way of honoring the audience. I remember hearing before, uh, that record 1989 came out. It was, you know, big departure for her. I saw her, uh, in an interview on like good morning America or something. And, and they basically said, you know, whatever. I mean, she was like, I don't know, 19 or something, 20 at the time, something like that. And, and they said, um, you know, uh, you know, what are you writing about now? Do you feel this pressure to grow up too quickly? You know, that sort of thing. And, and she said, look, I've been doing this since I was, you know, whatever, 14, 15 years old. And, um, I always, I'm just trying to be whatever age I am. So I'm 20 now. And when I'm 21, I'll be 21. And when I'm 22, I'll be 22. And I'm just trying to be here now, like to be, um, fully here. And, um, she says, sometimes I think, you know, in show business, you, you go from like 16 to 30 overnight and, and I'm just trying to be 21 right now. And I was like, wow. You know, I thought about that. And then like what happened with like Miley Cyrus, like, (laughs) I feel like she went from like 16 to, you know, 40 overnight. Right. And, uh, so I think there's a way to do this that honors the audience because they helped you get here, um, without staying stuck there. Cause in spite of what they say, nobody wants that. Nobody wants you to just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Not really. They want something that's going to change them, to challenge them, to transform the reality. And that requires you to do new things, some of which might not work, but that's how you get to the next thing. Yeah. So one more question. Um, this podcast is called the same 24 hours, which came from the idea that we have the same 24 hours in every day that everyone does. Um, but it's what we do in those 24 hours that, you know, makes us happier, healthier, more successful. So Jeff, what is something that you do on a daily basis that you think makes a difference in your world? What is something I do every day that makes a difference in my world? Consistency is king, right? (laughs) Or queen at least. (laughs) The, the thing that I do almost every day, probably six days a week, um, that I think helps everything, frames everything, it makes everything better and richer and just helps me prioritize everything, is make breakfast for my kids. Oh, that's cool. Um, and it's not like a big sacrifice or anything. Yeah. Like I just get up. I, uh, I go to the gym several times a week and then come and I'm back 
in the house at like 7.15, 7.30, which is the time that everybody else is getting up. And then I just I make breakfast for everybody, including myself. I'm real big on breakfast. Um, and I remember, um, you know, about a, a year and a half ago when I was thinking about growing my business, um, getting to the next level, just having to like double down and level up and do all these things and feeling really stressed about it because I was doing it, you know, and I was spending a lot of money. I was working a lot. And, and I was just like, do I really want to do this? And one morning I'm making breakfast for my kids as I do every morning going, this is what I want, you know, like I want to be able to do this. Uh, I want to run some big company and, and I don't disparage anybody who does or wants to do that, but I didn't want to do that. So it's always been like, like that is the most important thing, right? There's feeding my family, looking at my kids, being at home, like that is the reality around which I frame everything. And I, I love what Stephen King said in his book on writing where he had like, he was an addict and he had written all these best-selling novels and didn't even remember writing them because he was drunk and high during the time. Um, and then his family had multiple interventions to help him get clean, threatening to leave. And he realized, uh, he, which he writes in the book, he says, I used to think that life was a support system for art. Now I realize it's the other way around. Mm. That's awesome. Wow. So tell me about that Stephen King book. Good book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm writing. Great book. Yeah. Yeah. Book. yeah. Oh. And uh, I mean, that's, a, I always thought about that. Like, am I trying to get my life to be a support system for my work or, uh, or am I seeing the work as a means to build a better life for myself and my family? And don't get me wrong. Like, I feel like writing is my calling. It's not a job. Um, but uh, like my wife, my kids, these are not beams in this house that I'm trying to build. Yeah. Right? Like the beams are the things that I'm doing to hold them up and hold us up. And, um, yeah, I, I really do think like, like you can be very, very successful like Stephen King was and miss out on the joy of it completely. Sure. And I don't, I don't want to do that. What, what, whatever level of success is in the cards for me or wherever I end up, like I want to be enjoying it now I want to be appreciating it, living in the struggle and, and, and the, the joys of it, the trials and the triumphs and, and be living through it as much as I can be fully present to it, um, while it's happening. Otherwise I just don't want to be one of those guys who, you know, looks back and says, ah, you know, that those were the golden years and I missed them. Yeah. Well, you're awesome, Jeff. Thank you again for taking time and for being such an inspiration in my life. His website is goinswriter, G-O-I-N-S, writer.com. And check out the new book, Real Artists Don't Starve. So thank you, Jeff. I look forward thank to you. continuing to follow you and being inspired. Thanks, Meredith. It's my pleasure. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. See ya. This episode is brought to you by Sarah's amazing, functional, and beautiful bike racks for your car. Check out swimbikemom.com forward slash giveaway for a Saris rack that they are awesomely donating as a giveaway for you guys. <laughs>